good morning. It's, uh, it's been a blessing today already, hasn't it? You know, we've, we've experienced God in so many ways. We've been reminded of the blessing and gift of new life and reminded of the pain and grief that comes at the end of life. But we're here today because we have a God who meets us in all of those places. Amen? You know, if you're a guest with us today, we're, we're so pleased that you joined us. You might be wondering if my voice normally sounds like this. It does not, although it has since Tuesday night at board meeting. <laughs> Someone told me it could be Nampa, and I'm wondering if I am perhaps allergic to the sugar beet factory. <laughs> but we'll make it through. Uh, it's really good to be here. Uh, you know, these last couple weeks, so many of you have filled out those information cards and really shared some quite remarkable things. I've actually been humbled this last week as I was reading through those at some of the kinds of things that you shared with me. Some of you are going through some really difficult situations, some painful situations. And yet you freely shared those with me, and I don't take that lightly. In fact, I've found myself greatly humbled that you would share so much with me so quickly. So thank you for that. And even though I still don't know many of you and which names belong to which people, I'm praying for you and grateful to be here with you. Last week, as some of you know, my son was watching online and he saw that he could fill a card out digitally, and so he did. And in the part that asked, what is it you would like our pastor to know about you? He said, we're out of Cheerios. <laughs> Thankfully, I, I actually get to go see my family today. I have a, a flight that begins boarding in just a couple of hours. And so looking forward to some time with my family this week. A couple of days this week, we got on FaceTime together and started to open some of the mini cards that were in that container you shared with us two weeks ago. And all I can say is, wow, you have been so kind and so generous and also so thoughtful, not only with your words, but with your gifts. I can't write that many thank you cards, but we are so deeply grateful. So thank you so much for all of your kindness. We are, are truly blessed by that. I shared last week that for the next several weeks, I, I wanna reflect on some passages of scripture that have been particularly impactful in my life and formed me in some significant ways. The passage I want to share with us today was a passage that honestly, I don't even know that I realized was in scripture until some years back when I was reading a book written by a guy by the name of Eric Severson. I say that name because he went to school across the street from here in the early 90s, so some of you might know Eric. He wrote a book that reflected on really in some ways, Christian responsibility. How is it that we are called to live as Christians? How are we to relate to those around us? 
And in the beginning of this book, he, he told a story from when he was teaching at Eastern Nazarene College. And it was after chapel one day, and he was headed back to his office, and there was fresh snow on the ground. And so some of the students were having a little snowball fight outside of, of the building where he worked. And so he joined in for a little bit. He threw a few snowballs, dodged several others. And then he said his goodbyes and he went his way and he went into his office and sat down at his desk and started to work at his computer. He wasn't working very long when there was the distinctive sound of a shattering window. And on his floor was broken glass and the remnants of a snowball. He stood up and looked out the window and the students were just stunned. And Eric reflected on the question, what was his responsibility for that broken window? You know, society and even the legal systems would say he wasn't responsible at all. He's not the one who threw the snowball. He wasn't even involved in the snowball fight when this happened. But he had been with them. He had been sharing in that time together. What was his responsibility for that broken window? And through the lens of that story, he reflects on a number of passages of Scripture that at first we might dismiss. And I want to share one of these passages with us today. If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to stand. We're going to read a little longer than we do sometimes, so just fair warning for you this morning. We're in Numbers chapter 35, beginning in verse 9. The Lord spoke to Moses. Speak to the Israelites and say to them, when you cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan, identify for yourselves cities to be refuge cities, where a person who kills someone by accident may flee. The cities will be for you a place of refuge from the close relative of the dead. The person who killed someone may not be put to death until he stands before the community for judgment. You will establish six refuge cities for yourselves. You will establish three cities across the Jordan and three cities in the land of Canaan. They will be the refuge cities. These six cities will be refuge for Israelites, immigrants, and temporary residents as a place to flee for anyone who kills a person by accident. But if someone strikes a person with an iron object and he dies, he is a murderer. The murderer must definitely be put to death. If someone strikes another with a stone in hand that could cause death and he dies, he is a murderer. The murderer must definitely be put to death. Or if someone strikes with a wood object in hand that could cause death, he is a murderer. The murderer must definitely be put to death. The close relative responsible for the blood of the dead is the one who will put the murderer to death. When he meets him, he will execute him. If in hatred someone hits another or throws something at him with premeditation, he will be put to death. Or if in hostility someone strikes another with his hand and he dies, the one who struck is a murderer and he will be put to death. The close relative will put the murderer to death when he meets him. 
But if suddenly and without hostility, someone hits another or throws any object at him without premeditation or accidentally drops any stone on him that could cause death and he dies, even though they weren't enemies and no evil was intended, then the community must come to a verdict between the killer and the close relative in accordance with these case laws. The community will protect the killer from the head or from the hand of the close relative and return him to the refuge city where he fled. He will live there until the death of the high priest who was anointed with holy oil. But if the killer ever goes outside the boundaries of the refuge city where he fled and the close relative finds him outside the boundary of his refuge city and kills him, he will not be responsible for his blood. The killer must live in his refuge city until the high priest's death. After the high priest's death, the killer may return to the land he owns. These will be regulations and case laws for all time in all your settlements. Anyone who kills another will be executed on the evidence of witnesses, but one witness alone cannot testify against a person for a death sentence. You may not accept a ransom for the life of a killer who is guilty of a capital crime, for he must definitely be put to death. You may not accept a ransom for someone who has fled to his refuge city so that he can return and live in the land before the priest's death. You may not pollute the land in which you live, for the blood pollutes the land. There can be no recovery for the land from the blood that is shed in it, except by the blood of the one who shed it. You will not make the land in which you live unclean, the land in the middle of which I reside, for I, the Lord, reside among the Israelites. This is the word of God for the people of God. It's only week three since I've been here, and some of you are wondering what you've gotten yourselves into. <laughs> you know, this might seem like a rather crazy and obscure passage. And there's a whole lot in this passage that we can't talk about today. You know, earlier this morning in our sacred rhythm service, Pastor Danny actually preached a masterful sermon on the issue of violence and how we deal with violence in scripture and how we think of that as Christians today. I wish you all could have been there for that. That's not the focus of my message today. As I think of this passage, I, I want us to begin by considering the context in which we find this. The book of Numbers begins at, at Mount Sinai as, as God has been, been leading his people to the promised land, but they're not there yet. In fact, it hasn't been that long since God's people have left Egypt. Egypt is an interesting place for God's people. In the time of Joseph, Israel was the place of salvation. It's the place where they went to when there was no food, when there was a worldwide famine. And Israel's sons and their families found food and shelter and land. But as generations passed, the story was forgotten by so very many people. The story was forgotten by the new Pharaoh, we discover at the beginning of Exodus, who 
we are told no longer knew Joseph. But the story was also forgotten by God's people, as we see throughout the book of Exodus. Perhaps nowhere do we see this more clearly than the reality that this new Pharaoh put God's people into slavery. He made them his slaves, and God's people who found themselves in slavery referred to Pharaoh as Lord instead of Yahweh as Lord. So much had been forgotten, but God did not forget about God's people. And so God called Moses, and God sent Moses, and God even used Pharaoh's hard-heartedness to reveal himself in a mighty way, and God rescued God's people. And by the time we come to Numbers, God's people are, are out of Egypt, but they are not yet to the land where God is taking them. They've come to the place to realize once again that Yahweh truly is Lord, that Yahweh is God. And God meets them at a place that we know as Sinai. It's here at that place that, that God gives them the law, not just arbitrary rules that they would have to follow. Rather, the law revealed so much about the nature of God, who God is. And the law also revealed so much about the nature of themselves, who they were as a people. And it's here at Sinai that God renews the covenant and God's presence fills the tabernacle. And God's people have, have seen this and they've witnessed this. They've, they've seen God, but yet they struggle to trust God. And as a result, we're told that they would spend 40 years waiting in the wilderness before they could enter the promised land. That those generations who had left Egypt would not be the ones who would enter into the promised land. They would have to wait for a new generation to emerge. And it's now that we've come to that time, those, those 40 years have passed and it's, it's time for God's people to enter into the promised land. And so here in Numbers, God is giving them final instructions for how they are to live in the promised land. These aren't really instructions about how to live in a particular place. They're instructions about how to live as a particular people. They're instructions about what it means to live as God's people. You see, the reality is, is that God's people, our lives are to be radically different from all the other nations. As God's people, our, our lives are to be lived as, as an alternative example of what this new creation can be. Our lives are to be lived in such a manner that our very lives themselves can point people towards the love and grace of God. Amen? So by the time we come to this passage in Numbers, there are some things that jump out to us. One of the things that I hope would jump to us out to us quickly is that life is sacred to God. Life matters to God. And when a life is taken, there is no matter, no amount of, of financial compensation that can make up for it. One of the things that Numbers tells us here, when, when a life is taken, the only way to atone for the taking of a life is for the death of another life. 
Now we have to step back from our current context as we think about some of this. Seems a little harsh and a little difficult for some of us to wrap our minds around. But for the people of Israel, they found themselves surrounded by nations where the taking of life didn't matter. Lives could be bought and sold. Lives could be offered as a sacrifice to other gods, and there was not a big deal about that. And God is saying that his people are to live much differently, that all lives matter, that lives are, are sacred, they are a gift. As we continue in here, we're, we're told, though, that as if a person is is killed, it demanded the blood of another in order for atonement to take place. And the way this would happen, there was no criminal court system or justice system or any of those things. There was no such thing as, as corporate punishment. So if a person was killed, it became the job of the closest family member, the kinsman avenger, who would be the person who was tasked with the job of exacting punishment on the person who had murdered their family member. In cases of death, the kinsman avenger could take the life of the murderer with no consequences upon themselves. But the challenge is, what happens if there's an accidental death? What happens when you're chopping wood and as you take a swing, the, the head of your axe flies off, and it just so happens as somebody's walking by at the same time. And the axe head strikes that person and kills that person. It's not premeditated. It's purely an accident. What happens in that situation? Well, the kinsman avenger knows that the only way to atone for a death is the death of another. So what happens in those circumstances? God has made a provision. They're called cities of refuge. In the case of an accidental death, the, the manslayer, the, the one who accidentally killed another, can, can flee to one of those cities of refuge, and they stay there until a trial takes place to make sure that this was not something that was premeditated. If the manslayer is found innocent of murder, then they must stay in the city of refuge until the high priest dies, no matter how long that is. If the manslayer chooses to, to leave before the high priest dies, then the kinsman avenger can kill the manslayer without consequence. But once the high priest has died, the kinsman avenger must return home and the manslayer is free to go without harm. Remember, the only way to atone for a death is the death of another. And so in cases of accidental death, it's the high priest's death that atones for that death. There's a lot to process with this, but I want us just to pause for a moment and think about the cities. Think about these cities of refuge. And these are locations where hospitality is mandatory. They have no walls. They have little or no weapons. What is there to keep hardened criminals out from coming into these cities of refuge? The answer is nothing. 
These are cities that take responsibilities for crimes that they did not commit. And in the process of doing this, the, the residents of these cities even put their lives at risk for the sake of an injustice that they did not commit. This isn't just radical hospitality. This is dangerous hospitality, right? Here's why this passage has captured my imagination. What would it look like for the church to be a place of refuge? I'm not talking about places where manslayers come and live, but what would it look like for the church to be a place that assumes responsibility for injustices in our world? What would it look like for the church to take responsibility for injustices that we have not caused? What would it look like for the church to, to welcome and protect those who are threatened or those who are vulnerable? What would it look like for the church to make retribution on behalf of those who cannot do so for themselves? Instead of thinking of, of manslayers, I think of people like victims of human trafficking or victims of domestic abuse. I think about those who've been victims of racism simply because of the color of their skin. I think of those who've, who've come from other countries and have been the victims of fear-mongering just because people don't understand. I think of those who've been cast aside or cast down for whatever reason. And I wonder, what would it look like for the church to be a place of radical, maybe even dangerous hospitality for people like that? I realize this is probably something many of us haven't thought about before. And some of this might actually be making some of you uncomfortable today. And I totally get that. When I first started reading Eric Severson's book, I thought, I'm not responsible for the broken window. But as Christians, our primary call isn't to look out for what's best for me. Our primary call is to live a life of surrender that reveals God's love and grace to all those around us. As I think about this, I'm reminded that like the people of Israel, we are God's people. We've been called to live our lives in a manner that's different than the world around us. So that the very way in which we live our lives might point people to the love and grace we know through Jesus Christ. I'm also struck, though, as I look around this sanctuary, I still know so very few of you. But I'm reminded that every single one of us has failed at that task. We may not be manslayers, but we are all sinners. And according to the book of Hebrews, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And that puts us in a pretty difficult place, doesn't it? However, the author of Hebrews also tells us that there's a high priest, the great high priest, whose name is Jesus 
who took our sins upon himself and bore the full weight and burden of our sin, and that the great high priest shed his blood so that you and I could be set free with no condemnation, free to live. So I wonder if we have the great high priest who's paid the price for us, then what is it that we should do for others? Many of you know that this week we entered into a season called Lent that in many ways is a, is a season that reminds us to examine ourselves, to examine our lives in those places where, where we need God's love and grace to work more and more. And so during this season of Lent, can I be the first to confess that as a recipient of God's grace, I haven't always loved others as well as I should? Can anyone else confess the same? So I'd invite us today to share in these words. For some of you, these are familiar words. It's a simple prayer that John Wesley often prayed. It's called the Collect of Purity. It says this, Almighty God, to whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name through Christ our Lord. Amen. God, as we are gathered here this day, We thank you that we have a great high priest in Jesus who has took our sins upon himself and given us the freedom we did not deserve. And God, today I, I simply and humbly pray by, by the grace and power of your Holy Spirit working within us, that you would help us to be a people who would live our lives as an alternative example for the world to see, that we would live with a radical and even dangerous hospitality to love those whom you have already loved. So God, we offer ourselves today to you for this. In your name we pray, amen. Would you stand with us as we sing? Were creation suddenly articulate With a thousand tongues to lift one cry Then from north to south and east to west We'd hear Christ be magnified
I'll stand strong and worship you. And if it puts me in the fire, I'll rejoice because you're there too. I won't be formed by feelings. I'll hold fast to what is true. And if the cross brings transformation, then I'll be crucified with you. Because death is just a doorway into resurrection life. And if I join you in your sufferings, then I'll join you in, oh, we say, when you return in glory with all the
praise will rise. Christ be magnified in me. Singing, oh, Christ be magnified from the altar of my life. Christ be magnified in me. Amen. Thanks, Pastor Ryan. I haven't told you this yet, but I kind of have to pinch myself that I get to worship with this every week. <laughs> and it's not just the what and the how, but I hope those, the words of that song are the priority of your heart today. Christ be magnified in me. Amen. Would you join me for our benediction today? As we go, we acknowledge that we can't live lives of radical and dangerous hospitality. We can't live godly lives for our own strength and power. We need God's grace, and we also need one another. As we go from As we go, may you go in the grace and peace of our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.